Lord, if your law had not been our delight, we would have perished. But Lord, we have trusted in your word and we have life. And so we come before you again and ask that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to delight in your word now and to really live as a result. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Jude. Uh, We've started unpacking this small letter uh, verse by verse, and we've been seeing how the book of Jude is written by uh, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jude belonged to the family of Mary and Joseph, and of course then James, who was also uh, his full brother and a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at who he was writing his letter to. He was writing to uh, the Lord's people, the Bride of Christ, and he gave them some encouragements about who they are in Christ Jesus. We see in verse 1 that they are ones who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. And then last week we looked at the purpose of the letter, why he was writing the letter, and we saw that in verse 3 he said he was going to write to this church and try and give them some encouragement about the salvation that they share, but then he felt that he had to actually write to them and encourage them to contend for the faith, that there was a, a, a problem within the church that he wanted them to make sure that they were contending for the Christian faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. And so that's what we looked at in verse 3 last week. And so now we're up to verse 4, where he starts to speak more clearly about the problem that was going on in the church that he was writing to. And we see that in verse 4, that there are certain godless men, we read in verse 4, whose condemnation was written about long ago, who have secretly slipped in amongst them. There are people within the church that Jude is writing to who were causing problems within the church. They'd slipped in amongst them, and these are godless men whose condemnation was written about long ago. Now, what was it that these men were doing? Why are these men such a problem that Jude feels he has to write to this church and warn them about these men. Well, we read in verse 4 that they were changing the grace of our Lord for a license for immorality. Look with me at verse 4 where it says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These men had slipped in among them. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. What have these men done? Well, they were changing the grace of our Lord for a license for immorality. Now, what does that mean? Well, what is the grace of our Lord? What are they talking about when they talk about God's grace? Well, they're talking about the saving grace of God. That's what Jude is talking about, and that's what these men were obviously talking about, is that God saves his people by grace. That's what we understand the New Testament taught. That's what Jesus taught. That's what his apostles taught, is that Christians are saved by grace, not by works. Not by what they do, but by grace. Christians are saved not by keeping the Ten Commandments, which we had read for us before from Deuteronomy. They're not saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. But how then are they saved by God's grace? Well, it's by God pouring out his wrath on Christ Jesus at the cross so many years ago as a payment for our sin. And as the Holy Spirit takes his blood and applies it to the hearts of God's people, they are saved by faith. As they trust in Jesus, they're saved by God's grace, not by works. And so what is Christianity then? It's a religion not of do, but of done. God acts and saves his people. It is not about us acting and saving ourselves. It is about God acting and saving his people. And even with the Ten Commandments, which we had read before, 
It's very clear that God saved his people. The preface with the Ten Commandments is that I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you from slavery to Pharaoh and now live according to my ways. The Ten Commandments come after the salvation that has been wrought by God. And so Christianity is a religion not of do but of done, done by Christ, not about what we do. Whereas legalism teaches us that the way that we get salvation is by what we do, that if you keep these rules, you will then be saved. But what does God tell us? It is by grace that we're saved. We're saved by God's grace. And so what does that then mean that people can do? What do people do in light of the fact that we're saved by God's grace and not by what we do? Well, they start to do what we read here in verse 4 of Jude. What do they do? They change the grace of God as a license for immorality. They change the grace of God into a license for immorality. What does that mean? Well, people think that if God is gracious, then they can do whatever they like. They can do whatever they like, including sin. They can break God's law, and it doesn't matter. If I don't have to earn my salvation, if I don't have to earn my salvation, then I don't need to stop sinning, and I don't need to do any good works. I don't have to do good works if I don't want to, because God is gracious, and I'm saved by God's grace. Kind of a similar example would be if someone is told they don't have to work for food anymore, they then decide, well... I won't work anymore. If I don't have to work for food, then why should I bother working at all? And it's the same with Christianity. As people hear about God's grace and that they don't have to earn their salvation, they don't have to earn heaven, they think, well, that means I can do whatever I like, that I'm free to do whatever I desire because I'm saved by God's grace. And what is the sin that these godless men are particularly encouraging amongst the church that Jude is writing to? What is this sin that the godless teachers won't give up themselves and encourage others not to give up? Well, it's actually sexual immorality. We read in verse 4 that it says, They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And that word can actually be translated by other translations, it is translated by other translations, as sensuality, promiscuity, licentiousness, Lewdness, so it has a sexual overtone to it. And it's actually used by Peter in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 7, to describe the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it describes them as filthy lives of lawless men. It's this idea of lawlessness, but with a sexual overtone. And what is sexual immorality then? What could be caught up as a sin that is amongst all these things that the godless men are encouraging? Well, we understand that very clearly that anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman is classified as sexual immorality. That's what the Bible is very clear on, that sexual immorality is any sex that is outside of marriage between one man and one woman. And everybody knows that sexual immorality is wrong. Deep down they know. But what do people do? They try to justify it. They try to justify their sexual sin. What's a common way that people try to justify sexual sin today? Well, it's with the line, I was born this way. I was born that way. And so therefore, this is who I am, and I will naturally follow what I am, and I cannot change. 
That's one way that people try to justify their sexual sin. But what's another way? What was the common way in the church that Jude was writing to? Well, it's by presuming God's grace. Presuming God's grace. They know that what they're doing is wrong, but they justify it by saying, well, I'm under God's grace, and so it's all okay. Now, was this a problem only in the church that Jude was writing to in the early church? No, we see that this was a problem in other churches as well. And we see this very clearly in the writing that Paul gives us, the Apostle Paul gives, to the church in Rome. Paul raises this same idea of what we call antinomianism. Anti being against law, nomos being law. Antinomianism, that we're actually anti-law. Paul raises the same sort of antinomianism that Jude opposes as well. Where do we see this? Well, in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says, What then, because of God's grace, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Shall we sin because we're under law, uh, we are un not under law but under grace? And in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul even raises the argument that sin, if God's grace is extended to us because of our sin, that that glorifies God. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? God has opportunity to show more grace and to look more gracious and kind and compassionate if I keep on sinning. That's the argument that some people would raise. I should sin more so that God's grace is further shown. And another way that that could be shown is by what he says in chapter 3, verse 5, where he talks about how God's holiness is shown greater by our sin as well. Chapter 3, verse 5 of Romans Paul says, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? See the argument that he's making there? Well, he's proposing that people would make that as I show my unrighteousness, his righteousness is shown all the better. Just like you might have two children and one child is really naughty. What does that show? Well, the other child's Maybe a fairly good child, but they seem even better in light of the unrighteousness of the other one. And that's the kind of argument that people were making that the Apostle Paul raises. That as I sin greatly, then God is shown to be even more holy. And so it's a good thing, isn't it? It glorifies God then. The more I sin, the more God is glorified. And so therefore I should engage more in sin. Do people still think this way today? That answer is yes. Many th people still think that salvation by grace means I can do whatever I like. I actually know this when I'm talking to someone about the gospel and sharing it with a non-Christian, and I talk to them about it's by grace we're saved, and then when they, you can tell it clicks for them, that it's not by works, it's by grace, they then say, but that means I can do whatever I like. And I know in that moment that they have finally understood the good news of Jesus Christ, that it's by grace we've been saved because they understand that that means that they could do whatever they like potentially. And that's the argument that some people not just raise as an idea in light of the gospel, but they actually believe it is true. And they can then go on and do whatever they like. But is it wrong? Is it wrong to sin as much as we like in light of God's grace? Is it really godlessness? After all, aren't we... Under grace? We're not under the law, we're under grace? Is it right of Jude to say that these people are godless men? That they're godless men who change the grace of God for our license for immorality? Is it really godlessness? After all, 
If people want to sin while under God's grace, isn't it okay for them? Who are we to judge what people do in the privacy of their bedroom? Isn't it enough that people believe in Jesus? As long as they believe in Jesus. Isn't that all that we should be concerned about? Believing in Jesus and his grace. It doesn't really matter what they do with their lives as long as they believe in Jesus. But what does living contentedly in sin do? Trying to justify your sin as it's okay. What does it do? Well, the verse actually tells us. We read in verse 4, the second sentence, they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Now, some commentators look at that and say, okay, so they're, they're exchanging the grace of God for a license for immorality, but they're also by their lips denying Jesus Christ as a sovereign and Lord. I don't think that's what is going on there. I think what Jude is saying is that by the way that they live, they are denying Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Why? Well, sin denies that Jesus is the boss of our lives, despite what we may say. Yes, we're under grace, but the Bible teaches us very clearly that we're also under Christ's law. Not to be saved, but because we are his servants. We are saved to be his servants. But what do some people want? They want Jesus to save them from the consequences of their sin, but not from sin itself. They want Jesus as what? Their saviour. But they don't want him as their Lord. And so they deny him as their sovereign and Lord. They want saving from the consequences of sin, the punishment of sin, but not from sin itself. They're quite happy with the sin. They just don't like the idea of a punishment for sin. And so they want Jesus as their saviour, but not as their Lord. And why is that a problem? Well, if a servant doesn't obey his master, he is condemned. And he is shown not to be a servant of the master at all. If you continually go into work and don't do what your boss says, what do you show? You're not an employee of that boss. Despite what you may say, you're employed to work. And if you don't work, you're showing you're not an employee of that boss. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. Does Paul agree? Jude seems to think that these are godless men who deny by their actions the only sovereign and Lord, Jesus Christ. What about Paul? He raised the argument. What did he say in response to it? That we're not under law but under grace, so we can go on sinning. What did Paul say? Again and again in Romans he says, by no means. Every time he raises the issue, this idea of antinomianism, living in lives that are anti-law, he says, by no means, by no means, by no means. Why? Well, in chapter 6, verse 2 of Romans, he says, we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? What does that mean? Well, Christians have died to sin. Believers have died to sin. With Jesus at the cross by faith. When we died that day, we died to sin at the cross. Not just the consequences of sin, but to sin itself. So that we do not let sin reign in our bodies, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Sin does not reign in the body of believers because they're dead to sin. They've died to sin. If people are truly repentant of their sins, truly repentant, they are opposed to sin. 
opposed to it and are to live to serve God and not serve sin. Think of a throne. Think of who's on that throne. Is it sin that's on the throne or is it God that's on the throne? Is it Jesus that's on the throne? For the Christian, Jesus is on the throne now. Sin has been taken off the throne and put to death. And Jesus now sits there instead. And so they live according to Jesus' ways. Ephesians 2 teaches this truth as well, teaches the pattern of the Christian experience so well. Uh, Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2, page 1,156 of your church Bibles. 1,156, classic passage teaching us what the Christian experience looks like from beginning to end. Ephesians chapter 2, reading from verse 1, page 1,156. Ephesians chapter 2, reading from verse 1, where Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Here's a very good summary of human nature, of the state of humanity prior to Christ. We're all people who are dead in our sins, following Satan, following our sinful flesh, following the ways of the world. And because of that, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment. But then marvellous truth in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Very clear teaching that we're saved by grace, which is what I've been saying all along. One of the clearest examples of it in all of Scripture. Not by works so no one can boast. We're saved by grace. Joel, what about the the works business? If we're saved by grace, can't we do what we like? Isn't that what Paul is teaching in Ephesians chapter 2? Well, What does he say in verse 10? Lots of people don't look at verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Why did God do all that work at the cross for us? Why are we God's workmanship? It's so we will do good works. He doesn't save us so we can do bad works. He saves us to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Very clear that you cannot say, I am saved by God's grace so I can do whatever I like. No, you're saved by God's grace so you can do whatever he likes not whatever you like. And this isn't the only passage in Scripture that speaks about this. Another clear example is from Jude's full brother, James. Turn with me to James chapter 2, page 1,197. Page 1,197, if you have a church Bible. James chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 14. So James and Jude would have grown up together with the Lord Jesus. Amazing to consider growing up with the Lord Jesus. Um, Of course, James and Jude have 
Mary and Joseph as their parents, whereas Jesus only had Mary, and of course God the Father, uh, by the mystery of the Holy Spirit's conception. Uh, But uh, here in chapter 2, James, in verse 14, says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. How do you know that someone has faith? He says, I show it by my deeds. Demons have a faith, but it's not a saving faith. He continues in verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now this is not James teaching justification by works. But he's saying that we're justified by faith and the works that we have show that that faith is a true faith. And so in one sense, yes, you could say, as he says there, that he was justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Calvin has a very good comment on this. Uh, paraphrase it. That it's, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. If it's not accompanied by works, then it's a dead faith. And what's that then mean? That you still stand in condemnation. If we claim to have faith in God, but let sin reign, be on the throne, contentedly let it be on the throne, because of grace, our faith is actually a dead faith. And if we have a dead faith, what does that mean? We're not under grace and we're not saved. We're still in condemnation. So what's the final conclusion on all of this? If Christ is not our Lord, he is not our saviour, despite what we may claim. And when we think about it, blatant sin, unashamed sin, is an awful way to behave. What are such people like, these godless men that are spoken of in Jude? What are they like? Well, they're like a bride who presumes her husband's forgiveness for her adultery. What does she say? I love you, honey, and I know that you don't like me sleeping around, but I know you'll forgive me. So I keep on doing it. I'm not going to stop because I know you'll forgive me. I can sleep around and you'll forgive me because that's your job at the end of the day. You love me. You always show grace to me. And so I can do whatever I like. If a bride does that, what's it mean? She's denying her husband as her Lord. She's denying her husband 
and is not his bride. She's showing it by her actions. She's not really married to him at all. If someone is sleeping around with whoever they like, they're showing that they're not connected to anyone, despite what they may want to claim. So where do you stand this morning? Are you content in sexual immorality because you presume God's grace? Are you content literally with people who are not your spouse, like those in the early church? Are you content literally in sleeping around because you presume God's grace? Or maybe you just fantasise about immoral sex and are content in that. Well, Jesus says that's sin too. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, maybe it's not sexual morality that's a problem for you. But you are sleeping around metaphorically, unashamedly before Christ. What do I mean? Well, all sin is spiritual adultery. All sin is spiritual adultery. And this sin that's listed in Jude here, well, not listed, that's mentioned in Jude that these people were engaged in in the early church there, it's actually listed with a whole bunch of other vices that are given in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, which is that same Greek word, that's immorality in, the, in Jude. So you've got sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, so sexual sin. But then, following that, we've got idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, is what Paul says. So it's not just sexual immorality. It's all these other things, like hatred and discord and jealousy, selfish ambition, drunkenness, developing of factions. You say, but Joel, aren't we all guilty of such sins, even in this last week? Of selfish ambition, fits of rage, jealousy? Haven't we all been spiritual adulterers in the last week? But what's the difference between believers and unbelievers? What's the difference between the pagan and Christ's bride? The false bride, the pagan, thinks she has a marriage license so she can do whatever she likes, sin as much as she likes, whereas the true bride feels terrible about her sin, feels terrible about her sin, confesses her sin to her husband and tries really hard not to sin, tries really hard not to sin against her husband. How do we know that we're under grace? It's by grace, God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, restraining sin in our lives. Restraining sin in our lives so that sin is not allowed to reign in our bodies as it did before we were Christians. So which are you? Do you let sin reign in your life because you think God will just forgive you? Wake up if that is you. Why? You're not Christ's bride. You're a false bride, despite what you say, which means what? You're not forgiven of your sins. And you will remain condemned and be placed in hell one day because of your rejection of God and his ways. What should you do? Repent. 
Turn from your sins. Truly come to Christ for grace. Ask Christ to kill the sin in you and not just the consequences of sin. Kill the sin in you. By the Spirit's power, have Jesus as your Saviour, but also as your Lord. Hunger for him to get rid of sin from your life altogether. Not just the consequences of your sin. And why should you want that? So you avoid condemnation. That's what was said in Jude, that these men were condemned long ago, was spoken about long ago. Their condemnation is deserved. If you ask Jesus to be your Saviour and your Lord, and fall under his grace for your salvation, but also to restrain sin in your life, then you will start to really live with an eternal joy. The terrible thing is that sin offers pleasure to us, and we often feel a pleasure in that sin for a short time, but it never satisfies. Whereas Killing sin and living for righteousness, doing the good works that were prepared in advance for you to do, that God saved you for, they give pleasure and joy that does satisfy. They may be hard to do, but they do give a joy that will flow over into eternity in heaven. So if you've been letting sin reign and saying, oh, God will just forgive... Wake up, repent of your sins, and ask God to give his grace to you to save you from the judgment that you deserve, but also save you from sin itself. Now, if you have been in this last week struggling against sin, you've seen sin in your life, as we all, if we're honest, will admit, and we've struggled against it, but we didn't let it reign, what should we do in light of Jude chapter 1? Verse 4, well, we should thank God that by his spirit he has granted us living faith, not a dead faith, a living faith, so we don't let sin reign in our bodies. We should thank God for giving us faith so that we avoid two extremes. What extremes? Well, on one hand, legalism, that I can earn my salvation, but on the other extreme, that it doesn't matter what I do because I'm under God's grace. We've got law on this side and then anti-law on this side. Where are we meant to walk? In the middle, not deviating to the left or to the right. And if you have been struggling against sin this week, not letting it rain against and not letting it rain in your life, sit on the throne, then take heart and thank God for the faith that is keeping you in the middle. That God's grace by the power of the Spirit is keeping you from going to either side. And then what should you do as a result of recognising that you have that true faith? Well, rejoice that then you are Christ's bride. It's shown by the way that you live. That he's not only your saviour, but he's also your Lord and your husband. And will one day take you to be with him in glory itself. And what else should you do? You should thank God, but you should also keep fighting sin. Keep fighting sin. It keeps wanting to get back up on that throne. Keep pulling him back off the throne. And watch out for arguments that people will make to make you think that sin is okay, that you can treat it lightly. There are people in the early church who did. They slipped into the church and they started to pass around this idea 
that you can treat sin lightly, and it doesn't matter because God's a forgiving God. He's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, so it doesn't matter what you do. We've got to keep fighting such a voice. It can slip into a church and it can slip into our minds. And we can start to think that sin's not that serious after all because we're saved by grace. Sin is always serious and we should always be fighting against it. Why? So that we continue to rejoice in our God and the salvation that we have in him. And we continue to rejoice in doing what is good so that it really does satisfy the cravings of our souls for the happiness that we want. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak to him. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of grace, but also the God of justice. We thank you for Christ's death that removes the consequences of sin, but also removes sin from reigning in us who believe. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the times that we presume your grace for our sin. And so we sin with a high hand. We sin blatantly before you. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would cause distress in our souls about such sin and that we would flee to Christ by the Spirit to put to death the sin that is within. Help us, O oh God, to be faithful brides and to struggle against sin and to enjoy glorifying you by living holy lives. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is presuming your grace, strike fear into their hearts now. May they realise that their faith is a dead faith if it is not accompanied by works. And so, Lord, we pray that they would turn from their sin, ask you for grace to save them from their sin and the consequences of their sin so that they know the joy of knowing you now and always. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.